So um, we left the disciples and Jesus last week at this wedding celebration in Canaan. Remember that? And if you missed it, please listen to it. Get, get the uh, study guide at the back and uh, catch up. It's pretty easy. But I got a map um, that should uh, will come up here. Here we go. Yeah, just to give you an idea of where we are in geography. Those of you who did really well in geography will love this. Most of you will not. But I realized that uh, this is where he had just performed his first of those seven signs. Uh, seven signs that John specifically chose to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and in uh, this particular one, the first one, these jars full of water, these purification jars full of water for purification, he turned into the best wine ever for a failing banquet. And so you can, you can catch up. But right now, they're leaving Cana, and they're heading a little farther north up uh, to Capernaum. And it says in verse 12, after this, this is Jesus and the disciples, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So you can, oh, it's not there. Yeah, that's right map's gone. It's okay. It's supposed to be gone. And by the way, his brothers. Okay, any of you familiar with Jesus' brothers? There, there, were, there were a number of them, and in a couple of the other gospels, they're named. Um, but they, we read that they really weren't into who he was at first. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of... Ah. But they got to witness, at least this first sign and a few of the others we see later, they got to witness his glory. Um, we know that one of them, Jude, finally gets it, and he writes a pretty powerful letter that we looked at uh, just not so, so long ago as a church family. He came around. And then another brother, James, also came around. And you might have read his letter also, as I already said, the ladies are studying that letter on Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. here at the church, just another public service announcement that was free. And then in verse 13, so they're up in Capernaum by the, by the, by the lake. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, so made that long journey. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he, to and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, and this is from Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus cleanses the temple. He's just begun his public ministry back with the, the water to wine. And his next act, he's cleansing the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. The temple was not a place that the Jewish leadership at that time believed needed cleansing. Okay, we just got to get the, get the picture straight here. The temple was a place set aside as holy because God's presence was there. Solomon built the first temple. He built it to the Lord in Jerusalem, and it replaced that portable tabernacle, that tent of meeting that Moses had taken the nation through uh, the wilderness with. Solomon's temple was later destroyed. We've, we've gone over that story when we went through Daniel. Destroyed by the Babylonians and then rebuilt 
when they came back from their captivity, when Israel came back into the land. And then it was further modified right up until Jesus' time. And Herod, the King Herod, the, the crazy King Herod, did most of those modifications, made it this grand structure. But that would again be destroyed in about 70 A.D. Jesus prophesied that too well, later on. So what is Jesus really up to here? The Jews, as you read here, that's John's favorite term for describing the religious leadership in, in whole, in general. They want to know what's up also. So in verse 18 of chapter 2, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, okay, here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is prophesying what God will do with death. God can undo death, defeat death, destroy death. Jesus turns spiritually dead people into living people. And someone has said, and said it very well, that Jesus' resurrection power works best in graveyards. And for many of us here, our heart at one point in our life was a graveyard. Verse 20, so then the Jews say to Jesus' answer, uh, that's not in the text, the, uh, but you can, you can see that it would be there. Uh, it's taken 46 years to build this temple through the King Herod's, and you will raise it up in three days if we destroy it? For centuries, the Jewish temple had stood as the meeting place, the meeting place between God and man. It was the physical place where heaven and earth met on this planet, where, where atonement was made for sin. It was where God communed with His people. That's why the people were there for the Passover. They were leaving. They came from all over the known world and traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover and many of the other feasts to worship in the temple of God, where God is. So here, at that exact location, Jesus declares He is the true temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. And John explains for the readers what Jesus meant in, in verse 21. But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, three years hence, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They remembered that that psalm prophesied this and that Jesus fulfilled it. It all started to come together later on. And this is the great thing about having John write this account for us, the great thing about God through the Holy Spirit having John write this account for us because he was there. He heard most of these teachings with his own ears. He watched the encounters and saw the miraculous signs with his own eyes. And John explains the background and all the insider information for us as we, as we go along, especially here. And what's amazing here, what I, what, I, what I pick out, is the Jewish authorities were not complaining about what Jesus did. Isn't that fascinating? Instead, what they, they wanted to know, by what authority are you doing this? Like, who are you? 
What gives you the right to do this and to make this pronouncement? See, some of the Jews were already realizing that what Jesus was doing was actually the kind of thing that God had promised in the Old Testament that would happen when Messiah came. In, in particular, to this account, you can jot down in your margin if you want, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. So, they're asking, is this the anointed one? Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, the anointed one. And some of his disciples remembered this was promised, as I said in Psalm 69.9. Notice not only where this is all taking place in the temple, but also when it took place. It's during the time of Jewish Passover. This was the time when Jews remembered that God had set them free from slavery in, in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt to get to the promised land. And in Christ's day, by Christ's day, especially at this time, the gathering for the Passover was heightened by the expectation that something might happen to the occupying Roman army. That is why Rome, during these feasts in Jerusalem, would get the garrison out, would make a show of who they were and how strong they were, because they knew that this was kind of the feeling going on with the average person. They were believing that Israel would be delivered again by a Savior sent from God, just like Moses. So the questions are beginning to fly as news of what Jesus is doing and who he is and what he's saying circulates, was this Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was this Jesus from Nazareth the Messiah? Was he going to be the one to throw out the Romans? And the answer that came back from Jesus himself was no. <laughs> but he was going to be the one who threw out fake man-centered religion. It wasn't Rome who was the problem. It wasn't the occupying army that was the problem, but it was the people who got in the way of others coming close to God. That was the problem. The slavery of sin is far worse than any political oppression. Do you believe that? Sin reigns in our body. And its reign in our bodies is far worse than the loss of our religious freedom. This wordplay from Jesus that we see through this interaction, and we're going to see more later, deliberately confuses some, but becomes transparently clear to others who are being called by God. So, so Jesus stays for this Passover feast. And in verse 23, we read, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Do you remember the question that the leaders asked him? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Well, Jesus gave them plenty of signs for the answer. But then it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Verse 25, and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Signs may point to Jesus, 
And that's what John uses throughout his gospel, pointing to Jesus, the Son of God. But they are not the basis for true faith. People today say, if God would only show up, then I would believe. You're missing the point. We're way too fickle for that, as we're going to see with the people. Chapter 3. Maybe one of the most famous chapters in the, in the New Testament. John chapter 3. What verse in particular? Yeah, you all know it. You see it at football games. You see it everywhere. Right? John 3.16. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He followed the signs, and they led him to Jesus. So at least he was willing to see Jesus as from God, right? You're obviously from God because you're doing these signs, and this is how God has always revealed his true prophets to his people for, the, for thousands of years. So Nicodemus is from one of the strictest religious groups in all of Israel, he was considered to be one of the wisest religious men in all of Jerusalem, and he knew his Bible probably better than anyone, but he didn't quite get it. So what was, what was confusing Nicodemus was this teacher called Jesus, this rabbi, similar to the confusion that people have about Jesus today. Have you noticed? All the thoughts. Teacher, wise, yes. Yeah, yeah. Love, love. I love the teachings of Jesus, I hear. Messiah, maybe in, in, in a kind of kind of different kind of way. Son of God? No. Can't can't be that. Some Jews had started to wonder though. They'd even started to believe that he was the promised Messiah. The one who would lead Israel into this new age of power and wealth and prosperity. Heaven on earth. Nicodemus had the opportunity to observe this Jesus firsthand, see the signs, listen to his teaching. And what Nicodemus witnessed suggested that this Jesus might indeed be the real deal. And you can see where his questions are going. Rabbi, there's something really, really special about you. So, so you must be from God because of the signs and the miracles. They're, they're, they're wonderful, and we've all witnessed them, seen them with our own eyes. But if you are the Messiah, where's this kingdom that God promised that would come along with you? You see where the question's really going? You've been preaching the same message as John the Baptist has been preaching all these years. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, I don't see it coming. I don't get it. Just stop for a minute. What had Jesus just done? He had cleansed what temple? The Roman temple? No, no, the Jews' temple. <laughs> No, you're supposed to come liberate us, and you're turning over tables in our temple? So verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, verily, verily, what I say is true. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it. Just doesn't make sense. 
The subtle insinuation is, Nicodemus, you aren't born again. So, of course, you're not going to see it. That's why you don't see it. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old, like me? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, really? That's where I go. I'm just like, Jesus answered, <laughs> not like me, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is contrasting physical birth with spiritual birth. Like generates like. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We all know this, right? This is a physical thing. Only the Spirit gives birth to spirit. And he says, don't don't, do not marvel that, that I said this. You must be born again. He gives him an example from nature. He goes, the wind blows where it wishes. It does, right? Like, do you determine where the wind blows? No. When you're breaking the leaves, where is the wind typically going to blow? Right back at you. Yeah, you can't, you can't change that. You can just sit there and wait for it to change. But you, yeah, the wind blows where it wishes. It does its own thing. And you hear the sound of it, especially if there are leaves, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. It's kind of invisible. The point is that the wind cannot be controlled, nor at this particular time in history was it understood by human beings who don't have this, a lot of the technology that we have today. But that does not mean that you cannot detect the wind's effects, right? And so it is with the Spirit. You can neither control the Holy Spirit of God, although some of the people I listen to on, who are TV preachers seem to think they can, nor do we really understand the Holy Spirit of God because He's God. But that does not mean we cannot see His effects. Where the Spirit works, the effects are undeniable. They're unmistakable. Haven't you seen that in your own life? If you think back to what you once were and who you are now or watched the effects of the Holy Spirit in someone else's life, this transformation that takes place and you're just, whoa. Well, it's, and I've heard many of you say this. That's got to be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> or if you, someone thanks you or praises you for something you did, what do you say? <laughs> That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit because I wouldn't do that. But what's that got to do with the new birth in you and me? Jesus applies this illustration to the new birth by creating a further explicit analogy. He says, so it is with anyone who was born of the Spirit. If you are born of the Spirit, you cannot be controlled nor understood by people of physical birth if they don't have the Spirit. Everyone born of the Spirit has their origin and their destiny in the unseen God, for God is a Spirit, and those who worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. We are not bound by human decisions or other human will. 
Jesus will go on to teach his disciples that we shouldn't be afraid of what? Man and what he can do to us, but we should be afraid of God who can do whatever he wills in and through and to us. Both the mysteriousness and the undeniable power of the Holy Spirit of God are displayed in the Old Testament Scriptures. We, we go over those all the time around here. And Nicodemus had devoted his entire life to the in-depth study of the Old Testament. He knew it better than anybody else in the country. And Jesus makes it clear to him by quoting Old Testament principles and stories that the problem is with Nicodemus. Although he's the top teacher of the Scriptures in his country, he, he hasn't understood that those Scriptures, what, the, what they are really saying about Jesus. And this is why Nicodemus doesn't get it. Without God's intervention, he is only able to think of God's kingdom in terms of political parties that will rule the Sanhedrin, the Romans. It's like Republicans and Democrats, people who think of their religion in terms of those two parties are totally missing the point. Without God's intervention, He's unable to think of God's kingdom in terms, he's only able to think of God's kingdom in terms of wealth. You know, something you can count, you can touch, you can own and control. And he's only able to, to think of God's kingdom in terms of a religion that you can go to, that you can practice, that you can uh, perform rituals around things that can be seen with your own eyes. And that's Nicodemus's problem, and that's the problem with a lot of us from time to time. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, don't you get it? You who know the Old Testament so well, God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And all you can think of is the political oppression that's going on around you. It's got nothing to do with your outward performance either. That's a shock to a Jew. That's a shock to a Gentile. It has to do with an inward change, spiritual. The place where God must rule is primarily not in palaces and parliaments and capital buildings. It's primarily in the heart and soul of people. That's where God must rule. The problem is not an occupying army. I've often thought about this because I've never experienced it. I don't know if any of you have. To experience being under the control of a foreign entity that dictates everything you do through the day. And you step out of line and you're dead. That's where they were at. But that wasn't the problem. Well, sure, it looks like the problem. I wake up to this problem every day. It's not the problem, Jesus says. It's not Rome. It's occupying sin, not an occupying army. Like what's in your own heart. 
So Nicodemus, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, if you want your sin removed, you must be born again. Have I said that enough? You must be born again. Being a Jew, being a leader of the Jews doesn't cut it. God Himself, His Holy Spirit, must change you from the inside. God Himself must give you a new beginning. The old is gone, the new has come. Nicodemus, if you know your Bible backwards and forwards, that's not going to bring about the change on the inside that is essential. You must be born again. Verse 9. Verse nine. Nicodemus said to him after this, how can these things be? Because this is not what I learned in school. This is not how I interpret the Old Testament. And Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. By the way, Jesus knows everything. Jesus sees everything. So you just might want to believe what he has to say. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. I just told you about the wind and stuff. How can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things about the Spirit? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. One of John's favorite expressions. One of Jesus' favorite expressions for himself. The Son of Man. And then Jesus uses an Old Testament account just to drive it home for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you could probably recite this story yourself, but he says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, this is born again, being associated with eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what about this serpent on a pole? You guys know that story? Although God had done some pretty astounding things for the Israelites when He delivered them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, just crazy miracles and signs, they moaned and they groaned about their conditions continually. We, we would never do that, would we? And as a judgment for their moaning and their groaning, which God declares is rebellion against Him, note to self, Next time I feel like griping. God sent poisonous snakes into the camp. I mean, it's that serious. And snakes do what snakes do. They bit the people, and people were starting to die. It's in Numbers chapter 21, if you're looking for the story. And that's why, after Jesus refers to that story, John writes one of the most famous statements of all time, for God so loved the world. John 3.16. And in that famous verse, John doesn't use the word um, that would be for this planet, which includes all the wonders of creation and nature. He carefully uses a word that's translated here, world, 
that's generally employed in the Bible to indicate wickedness and failure (laughs) in general. So he's pointing to the fact that we've all got a problem that can't be solved by our own efforts, and we live in daily disobedience and rebellion to God as a planet, as a world. It's like a deadly poison coursing through our veins. And the only hope is for a radical solution that will bring about a complete change like a blood transfusion. And with the judgment of snakes that the Israelites endured, God told Moses to construct this bronze snake, a snake of all things, right? A bronze snake, put it on a pole, lift it up so everybody could see it, and anybody who looked at it, those who trusted in God's solution to their snake problem, would receive life, would receive healing. They would live. And you can hear some of the people back then, can't you? Just like you would today. Well, Moses, that just doesn't make sense. (laughs) I mean, seriously, look at a bronze snake on a pole and believe. I don't get it. And you can hear some others, like you would hear today. Did God say that that's going to work? Yeah, He did. I'm all in, (laughs) because God said it. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus was predicting was going to happen to Him one day, that He was going to be pinned to a cross and lifted up at the location called the Place of the Skull, so that anyone who looked on him in faith would, be, would live and would be healed. The curse of snakes. Bronze snake on a pole. Look and believe. The curse of sin. Jesus takes on the curse of sin for us on the cross. Look and believe. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Next, we go on to another one of John's themes. So he's really laying it on Nicodemus here, isn't he? I mean, he's giving it to him from every angle, every side. It's a theme he introduced back in chapter 1. Maybe you remember, light and love. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the book. For God, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Our world is divided into two camps. It is black and white. Those who through faith in Jesus have been rescued and have have entered into God's mercy and into God's love and those upon whom God's holy and just condemnation now reigns. Now reigns. Now this reality is so shocking, plainly shocking, and is so disturbing even amongst some Christian assemblies, 
that many today don't want to say anything about that. Let's not talk about this. Uh, let, let's just numb the pain. <laughs> We're really good at this, numbing the pain. Let's just focus, I know, let's just focus on nice things. So whenever we all get together on a Sunday morning, we're just going to talk about nice things, all right? Just uplifting nice things. And you know what? If we ignore it long enough, this reality, maybe it'll go away. The biggest issue facing all living souls is where they stand before God. Would you agree with me that that's the biggest issue? It's not education. It's not the economy, although those two things will get you votes. It's not even COVID. All those things and more are important, and they deserve our attention. But none of them is the biggest issue, is the real problem. Have you put your faith, your trust, your hope in God's appointed rescuer? His own son, Jesus Christ. Or does his just and holy condemnation reign on you right now? This is so vital an issue that John goes on to give us two tests as to whether you're in or whether you're out. How you know how you know whether you're living under grace or you're dying under condemnation. The first test is verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. John tells us that those who are under God's condemnation are easy to pick out. They do not want God's light shed on their lives. They run from it. They rebel against it. They'll do anything they can to get out of it because they don't want to expose their lives. I, I really do think they, they do get it, and that's why they avoid it. To the light of God's character, to the light of God's Word, they're afraid of what it will show up, and they know that the comparison won't be good. And the second test is verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John's not saying that someone who has been rescued by God becomes this do-gooding do -gooding, uh, show-off for God. John says that the rescued person wants to make absolutely certain that everyone can see that it's God who did it. That person wants all the glory and all the honor to go to God, not towards themselves. When we sing, do we sing with that motivation? Do we sing praises to God with that adoration, with that kind of glory and honor? Are we, are we pointing others to God even when we sing? Are we? Won't you rise with me? And we're going to sing in closing. John 3 is these, these uh, first 22 uh, uh, verses, some of the most powerful verses in the entire Word of God. And we've just spent time very, very brief amount of time digging into them.
I pray that the rest of this week you will dig even further and allow God's Holy Spirit to work in you in a spiritual way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we bow before you, and your word is precious. It's powerful. It's sharp. It cuts us open and lays our heart bare before you. It points out the areas where you are at work, where your light has shone in darkness and overcome it, and we are all the better for it and all the better to others because of it. And Lord, we admit it also shows other areas where we must have victory through you, through the power of your Spirit. You know what they are. Many of us know what some of them are. So now we lift our voices in thanksgiving and praise because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.